Yeah, I'm talking to Julia Grillmeyer here from Vienna, and she has a podcast there. Uh, thank you so much for, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. So actually, like my trip is the research I'm doing. I'm very interested in this intersection between futurism and science fiction. So I met a lot of people who understand this as a kind of um, science fiction as a tool to sketch scenarios. And they do that for communities, they do that in a corporate context, but also in universities, in academic research. Like I met very different people, yes. but a lot of them are inspired by science fiction. And I asked them if they consider that a trend. And they actually do because seems to show up more and more. What do you think about it? And the question is the relationship between science fiction and futurism. And uh, some futurists are quite well paid just for s existing and science fiction writers only get paid when they sell something. So there's a little a different kind of pressure on you to produce things. Uh, my friend Bruce Sterling I've written a number of science fiction stories with him. And he often will consult as a, a futurist for companies like Global Business Network. And he's, you know, he always has a funny way of putting things. And he says, the companies that come and call in the futurists, they're the ones who know their business is dying and they're grasping at straws. And uh, the thing is, science fiction, we're not really about predicting ways for people to make money. That's not really something that we care about. Uh, <laughs> a lot of us are somewhat left-wing and we hate business people anyway. But uh, one of the things, with science fiction, often the process is, in a way, it's similar to futurism. I, I look at the present and my surroundings and what's happening around me, and then I'll think, well, what if I dialed that up just another notch, you know, just a little bit further? And uh, that's sort of what futurists do, too. Uh, again, I'm not really interested in predicting future business conditions. I, I want to find a great story that's, that's trippy and that's exciting and that will maybe enlighten me a little bit or frighten me and amuse me. And... I do like it to be realistic though, and so then there is a sort of intersection with futurism that I always like my science fiction stories to make sense. That's a, that's sort of a difference between science fiction and fantasy. They're, the scenarios they depict aren't really so different. I mean, there's people flying or people shrinking or people traveling in time or reading other people's minds. But in, in fantasy, you're not obligated to provide any sort of a explanation. You, you'll, you know, just wave a wand or something like that. And in science fiction, we, we feel like we have to make up some sort of explanation. Though, usually, these explanations are only, they're only paper thin. They're not very logical, necessarily. But it is a process that we do. And maybe I, more than some science fiction writers, I'm into that, the sort of making the science make sense because uh, you know I was trained as a, a mathematical logician and I have a PhD and I like to think logically so and the process of of doing that logical theory 
it's useful for the fiction because it'll suggest things that I might not have thought of and it'll suggest constraints that I hadn't thought of and it's always good to have some constraints in your story because then that's a challenge for the characters so uh, there is as I say there's this overlap from science fiction and, and futurism but in many ways they're different because the goals of science fiction are more to create art and the goals of futurism are more to tell people how to make money. And as I said, some people told me they really consider this as a trend right now, like the recent years. But I know you have been thinking about this for quite some time. So what do you think? Is there something new to this now? Or is it just more? Or is it just old wine in, in new vessels? Uh, I think because science fiction has been around a lot people are it's more the part of cultural fabric it used to be more of a niche a niche field for unsavory people <laughs> and but now there's been so many movies and tv shows with science fiction themes and there's also this element of future shock that things seem to us to be changing sort of rapidly in the world around us the technology and uh If we say, well, if we look at this science fictionally, it'll give us maybe a w give us a way to sort of step back a little and kind of look at the world as if it's a story and be able to somehow get an angle on it. Uh, there's also science fiction is really permeating mainstream literature. There's now really a very large proportion of the books being published now. They actually are science fiction books. But because they're being put out as mainstream literary novels, the high mandarins don't want to say that their work is science fiction because that's scuzzy. It's for dirty, crazy people. And uh, <laughs> but so they'll always call this this work is visionary. This is futuristic. This is a, a great feat of the imagination. A huge leap of thought. And often it'll just be using a, a trope that is really quite familiar to science fiction readers. It'll be a little bit of time travel or some robots who look like people or telepathy. And the critics will just be slack-jawed and wander that, they, that somebody ever thought of such a thing. And if you're a professional science fiction writer, there's a bit of uh, bitterness on our part, a bit of resentment that... Uh, we invented this stuff and we don't get as much recognition as we would like. This said, I will say it's part of the nature of an author's personality to be bitter and resentful. <laughs> well, there are a lot of science fiction writers involved in those projects. Though you just mentioned Bruce Sterling, he did a lot of mm -hmm. like what he called himself futurist work or he started this whole design fiction thing that is also pretty much connected to this um, to this idea of I don't know it's not so much a pro about prediction I guess but about like sketching futures or imagining futures uh, yeah well that's I what I was talking about just there was more about mainstream novels being yeah. using science fiction but I certainly have no problem with futurists using science fiction I think it's a great idea and making up the scenarios everybody has fun with that There's the the, tr the method that Global Business Network always uses is the you know the four the four scenarios that complement each other, and that's uh, we like to make up stories, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all.
Have you been approached to participate in similar projects in the because I mean talking uh, talking of it as a like as a trend or I don't know I know you have been oh, at uh, times, yeah at times I've done some work with yeah. uh, there's a group in Palo Alto and they're called uh, some word with future I c why can't I think of their name I'll think of it later and we can dub it in future. There's the Institute of the Future, I think. This is a huge yeah, thing, IFF, right? Institute yeah. for the Future, okay. IFF, yeah. yeah, in Palo Alto. Yeah, and they're real nice people. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes they'll have science fiction writers working there. But uh, I've given a lot of talks for them. And once they did an anthology of stories, and they paid me to put a story in there. And uh, it was interesting. I, they had, a like, a, a conference, and so I was there talking about this story. And... The people there were like, I think it was very expensive to attend the conference. It was, you know, like a thousand bucks. And uh, the people there were like, well, I'm from Coca-Cola. I'm from Hallmark Cards. You know, I'm from, I'm from Shell Oil. I mean, people from really big companies are, are taking futurism seriously. Because, yeah, the world is so chaotic and nobody knows what's coming. Uh, yeah, this is also probably because I mean, as it, as you said, in this distinction between science fiction and futurism, there is this um, more to the story. This more like maybe flipping coins a lot more than in this in this scenario sketching, where it's all about plausibility, probability, prediction. But it's they use science fiction because they actually predict that it's getting more unpredictable. That they can predict, right? That it's it's. If one thing is sure, that it's more crazy than than we imagine right now. Okay, I think we're gonna have to move because of that sound. Oh yeah, they're starting. Yeah. Remind me what your question is. Um, my question was that actually, because you said before, you don't this distinguishing between science fiction and futurology. Uh -huh. You would say it's um, because you want like a good and trippy story and not uh -huh. this scenario, but don't the futurists especially ask you and other science fiction writers for scenarios because they also want them to be like trippy and maybe not this in this um, predictable yes. plausible way but because especially because they they are sure that if one thing is sure then it's that it's getting more crazy and unpredictable than we can imagine right now okay that's a good point And the times that they've asked me to do like a, a story, if I if I make it crazy, they they like that. There's one reason they like scenario building. I think because your your imagination it kicks into gear more if you if you populate it. You know, if you're making up a scenario, if you put people in it, then that animates it, and they're reacting to it, and you care about this story more. And if you just make you know, a dry prediction like people will use more solar power and, you know, telepathy might be possible. But if you if you put a characters into it, then the story kind of grows itself because then the people interact and they have problems. And uh, so it's, it is a very useful tool. And, uh, and of course, science fiction writers are good at that because that's, we do that all the time. And what ways or 
even tools, infrastructures, contexts you find interesting that these stories, be they called science fiction stories, straightforward or scenarios, are discussed. I'm not quite sure what you mean by infrastructure. I mean when universities or think tanks or whoever says, well, okay, we want to think about the future with science fiction. They sometimes write new stories in workshops or whatever, but uh, they also commission writers to write stories for the anthologies, for instance. Sure. But then it's not only for for the sake of um, reading a good story, but also that like this future thinking kind of mm-hmm. um, has a common ground, right? They, they mm-hmm. Maybe are they ways of exchanging about these stories later that you find interesting? Uh, I'm still not exactly sure what you're getting at. I mean, usually we have a trouble selling our stories and if somebody says they'll pay me to write a story, then I'm happy to write the story. And that's all the infrastructure <laughs> I need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I don't yeah. really care very much about what they, they do with okay. the story or what they think about it. And uh, I mean, they might if they make some comments and it's fun, then that's good. Uh, you mentioned you were at Arizona State University yeah. and they wanted to make a website where they would post these stories that we'd written and then they were imagining that people would then put lots of comments like on a Facebook page and we'd get all these threads self-generating but then nobody really used their site it's sort of like you have this seed of very sterile soil and you're expecting plants to grow there but we already have places to do that on the social network and I don't think we're likely to use an artificial playpen social network just because it sounds like a good idea but there's a, a limited amount of time that people have to do things on the web. Yeah. But also, I mean, science fiction seems to be, um, a lot of people call it like the most appropriate context, not only because of its like traditions and formats, but also because it has a specific community, right? People are get like involved in it and discuss these things and you, you uh, kind of, when you publish something you don't get away with it if like people will really read it and discuss it well again I think you have this idealized notion of what it's like to be a writer (laughs) 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 I mean I'll publish a story and I I hear very very little about it I mean sometimes there might be people who write a review like a hundred words long of the story you know and Basically, they like it or they don't like it. And if there's some something in the story that somebody considers to be a technical error, then they'll write the editor. Often, I publish with Asimov's, and Sheila Williams is a, a dear friend. She's the editor. And then she'll forward that to me. And then if the, if the complaints are reasonable, well, it's too late to fix it in the magazine, but then I'll go ahead and fix the story before I... I publish it in my complete stories. So they're, they're, they are alert, but it's something, it's like in the old days, in the sort of golden age of science fiction, astounding stories, you would have these fanatical letter writing because people didn't have much outlook for that. So now we just go and do something on the web, we do email, we do Twitter. But there could be these these long, devoted fan threads. and uh, And there are things like... The, the vulgar science fiction like Star Wars or Star Trek that, you know, have the, the lowest type of fans. 
<laughs> the professor says. Uh, then they'll have fanzines and they will endlessly debate, you know, tiny details. Yeah. And that's that's just the, the really mass media science fiction will get that kind of chewing it over. But if you're writing a, a somewhat literary, somewhat avant-garde story and publishing it in a magazine, you're not going to get very much feedback. Yeah, yeah talking about avant-garde, uh, I wanted to ask you about transrealism. Mm -hmm. Because you said this is more like a mode of avant-garde writing, mm -hmm. but it, I mean, than science fiction. But I was wondering that for me, transrealism resonated a lot with what I thought w was the more interesting aspects of these futuring things. Mm -hmm. Because it says especially that um, when the characters are out of control or something happens that you don't necessarily predict or think plausible, then it actually gets realist because this is how, how the real world happens. Yes. So, yeah. Well, that's true. I mean... It, there's always this this thing that happens if you know that a writer's happy when there's if your story takes on a life of its own and you don't really know what the characters are going to do it's usually even for a story I don't exactly know how it's going to end when I start it I, I set them in motion and then uh, I'm you know continually thinking what are the possibilities and what could happen and then there's kind of a a game designer once told me a principle that's useful in composing stories. If you have somebody and they're going to get go from point A to point B, uh, put up a barrier so they can't get there directly, and they have to go to point C first. And so that's that's kind of a composition principle that you that you use. And you can even then have a barrier between A and C. It's I mean, you can make it as hard as you like. But uh, so that's something about making things surprising things happen another thing i once saw somebody say if you're writing a story and you think of some completely crazy unexpected thing to happen to the characters always do that and uh that's pretty useful as a principle too uh you just you think it's going along and then just throw something in and ruin it and then perturb the system would be another way to put it so that's a kind of trying to make a, a chaos laboratory, you could think of a story, yes. Yeah. And this is also, I mean, I thought very related to scenario sketching where disruption is often this, like this element that you want in there. Yes, for scenario sketching, you, you do want to disrupt because, uh, you know, it's like we have the five-year plan of the mm. our fearless leaders and that's never what's going to happen. So there's lots of disruption. And then you also gave in the in your collected stories, you had this, um, I think it was five categories, right? Where you said, well, my stories are either this or that. And one was also thought experiments. I think actually the first one was thought mm -hmm. experiments. How would you distinguish that from the trans-realist writing? Well, I grew up, I was fascinated by the beatnik writers and... William Burroughs and Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg in particular. And there was this quality that their novels or their poems were, it was pretty clear they were in some way directly about their, their personal life. I mean, especially with Jack Kerouac, but mm -hmm. also with William Burroughs. And, uh, but then it wasn't a memoir because things weren't exactly true necessarily. 
they had warped them and made them more interesting or changed them in some way. And I thought, well, that's that's a good kind of writing to do. And partly it's, for a writer, you know, again, many writers were very into ourselves, very egotistical. And the idea of being the hero of your novel, that's, that's a satisfying idea. But then uh, the other thing is the transreal is the trans part, where to make it unusual, that was the idea I had in writing science fiction. Uh, when I was starting to write around the late 1970s, early 1980s, it seemed like a lot of science fiction was, and it's still the case, was not really about well-rounded characters that are like human beings you know. There's a tendency to fall back on on flat 2D stereotypes. And I thought, well, I'd like to write science fiction, but I'd also like it to be like a beatnik novel. So I'd like to have cool, kind of dense, emotionally complex characters. But then, uh, I don't want to just write a realistic novel. I mean, John Updike, he's, you know, I'm never going to do that better than he does, so... I'll throw in science fiction, and then that's a way to give it an extra layer. And so that's where transrealism comes from. And the thought experiment then was more connected to your research at the, or to your right. well, being a see, mathematician. Often I will do several different yeah. kinds of things in the same story. Mm -hmm. A thought experiment is that's the what if. That's, yeah. you know, what if. Uh, what if I could fly? What if I had telepathy? What if I could travel backwards in time? Uh, and then what would happen? And here you kind of get into that futurism scenario thing because if you just say what if, then you say, oh, I don't know, maybe this, maybe that. But if you embody it in a story, then it becomes, again, it's, it's Einstein famously used that phrase, thought experiment, and you start filling it in and having characters subject to these these conditions, then you will, by observing it and writing about it, you'll observe the outcomes which are not always what you expected. And that's, that's I was very interested uh, always in the notion of robots having human intelligence. That's, you know, a very classic trope in science fiction. And then uh, I was really pushing on this idea in the late 1970s. And I got my PhD in mathematical logic, as I mentioned, and there's lots of philosophical or mathematical philosophical work speculating can a machine think. You know, it's sort of a dead horse. We've just beaten on that so much, but it's it's still an interesting problem. And then uh, when I wrote my novel Software, <coughs> I was kind of looking for a way to write about robots that were intelligent. And by then, uh, I'd studied Gödel's incompleteness theorem quite closely. I even met Kurt Gödel, and I was at the Mathematics Institute in Heidelberg, Germany. And I spent a year there just thinking about the philosophy of what is consciousness. You know, how can we have intelligence? And looked at it in a certain way. Gödel's theorem says that you can't, in fact, write down a simple description of of consciousness. You, you sort of, a system can never really be as smart as itself. And then you'd have to be smarter than yourself, but you can't be smarter, so you can't describe what you're doing. And then, uh, and Gödel made sort of a passing remark. He said, nevertheless, we could 
caused such a system to come into being. And he was very concise. He would just say this, and then you go and think about that for three years. And I eventually came to realize what he meant was that, or what he could have meant, was that you could evolve intelligent robots. And now this is kind of a, it's a very familiar idea. And when I first wrote about this, this was not at all a familiar idea. It was, yeah. I, I was like the, one of the first people to even write about that. And because it's too hard to design something, but evolution, I mean, how did we get our intelligence from evolution? So then I had the idea of letting the robots evolve and become more like humans. And then the other step was, uh, traditionally, like in Asimov, the robots, they're sort of, they're like engineers, you know, they're, they're boring, they're logical in the kind of boring sense of the word, they have no spark, no life. Even worse is sometimes when they'll have the machine talk in all capital letters. Like, you can speak English, but you don't know how to use the shift key. That's not too plausible. <laughs> but, uh, so then I thought I should just go ahead and have the robots be like crazy people. And that was something I learned from Robert Sheckley, who was really my favorite writer as a boy. He's a wonderful story writer and very hip and cool. And, uh, his robots were always like people. And I thought, just go with that. Just have them be like people. And then uh, you'll have interesting characters. That's fascinating, yeah. Makes sense. The, um, I wanted to ask you also about, I mean, I don't know if this is part of the transrealism, actually, but saucer wisdom. Mm -hmm. Would you, wh was this for you like a transrealist novel? Oh, yeah, it was one of the most transreal novels. Okay, okay, Because, I yeah. mean, the main character is called Rudy Rucker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But it's all lies. <laughs> But, I mean, in some off way, I mean, he lives where I live. I That was a strange, the way that book came into being was a strange thing, where Wired Magazine wanted to start publishing books. And uh, my friend Mark... Frauenfelder was working there and he later made his fortune with Boing Boing. He started that blog. But then he was an editor at Wired Magazine and I'd written some articles for Wired and he says, why don't you write a book about futurology? You know, a book about things that could happen. And then I thought, okay, I, I can make up a lot of ideas. And then uh, I showed them to him and he says, well, these are good ideas, but we need some sort of frame, like Where did you get these ideas? Could you make up some framework? And then I had this idea that it would be cool if I knew somebody who traveled into the future and he actually came and told me these, and he'd seen these ideas. And then it just got crazier then. Uh, I had this friend visiting me. He was a, he was a, a veteran of the Navy. He, I went to college with him. And he, at that point, had really long hair and a really long beard and he's sort of a forbidding demeanor and so I went to my pitch meeting at Wired and I brought this guy with me his name's Greg Gibson and I told them this is a man named Frank Shook and I actually he's a friend of mine and he's thinks he's been in, abducted by flying saucers very many times and he told me the stuff that I'm going to put into this this book for you and They're not quite sure, you know, <laughs> if I'm kidding. And that, But they believe me, because Greg was so forbidding. 
And then he suddenly jumped up and said, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. And he storms out of the meeting. <laughs> and then these people, they're like young editors. They're like in their 20s. And they're just looking at me, you know. <laughs> they don't know what to think. And so then eventually I said, well, this actually, it's a scam, you know. He, but I think we should just run with it and, and say that Rudy Rucker has gone crazy and he has a friend who's a saucer abductee. And then I was worried it would restore, it would destroy what little credibility I have <laughs> on the literary scene. But I thought, well, I mean, this is what that guy uh, who made so much money with the saucer books did. You know, the the man who wrote all those books about being abducted. What was his name? I can't think of it right now. But anyway, um, but then in the end, we decided to not insist that it was true. The thing is, at that point, then Wired, their book division collapsed, and they had paid me an enormous advance, the biggest advance I ever got for a book. And then they didn't want to pay me because they weren't going to publish the book, but my agent made them pay me. And then I went to Tor Books, and they said, sure, we can publish it, but let's let's not insist that it's really true. Let's just say these are thought experiments. And then writing it was hard, Eventually, the book became a novel. Now, eventually, I, I wasn't quite sure it would be a novel, but then, because yeah. it's sort of like Nabokov's book, Pale Fire. There's a, it's a book, it's a long poem with a whole lot of footnotes about the poem by the editor. And that book is actually a novel, but the, the novel is hidden in the footnotes. And so I, I thought that's a really cool way to do the book. So then I had, like, Frank Shook's reports about the future, but then, on the side, I, Rudy Rucker, the editor, keeps having interactions with Frank Shook, and like Frank steals, <laughs> steals my typewriter, and just eventually he gets me into a saucer, and so it's a very cool book. It's the strangest book I ever wrote. Yeah, that's another. I mean, also footnote on like I guess future and science fiction because. It's the strangest book you ever wrote, but it's also the one that was labeled non-fiction for a long time, right? Well, that's, I think, Tor Books, they made a decision to call it popular science, non-fiction, futurology. And at the time, I, we thought that was a good idea, but I, I think it, it's better to call it a novel. I think that's what it actually is, and I think it has more appeal that way. But marketed as science fact, it people didn't know what to make of it. Well, first there's people who just hate, because it's called saucer wisdom. So then they say, all right, this is a book by an idiot who believes in saucers. So that's, you know, that turns all them off. But then the people who like saucers, they look at the book and I'm making fun of them, you know. I'm, I'm sort of making fun of Frank Shook the whole time and yeah. calling him a nut. So then those people were unhappy with it too. So it was it's a very hard book to pitch. Well, I think it's super interesting that it's uh, that it was labeled non-fiction, like in this mm -hmm. futurist context, because it also shows that, I mean, they now, they try to really be on the safe side and say, well, we want science fiction based on hard science, and they want they want science fiction like as a as a label and as a community and as a genre but they kind of want to get rid of the fiction part and this does not work because this is also the interesting part this that's like right. gap in between right yeah well that's it's the fiction and the story and the live characters and the humor and the dialogue and the images that make it a story you can connect with otherwise it's just 
it's just gobbledygook so besides this futurology or futurist of um, future visions that is kind of I, I think very present in contemporary US science fiction do you have like interactions with contemporary sci-fi and other writers that you find interesting in or or do what what aspects of contemporary science fiction you find appealing Well, I, I treasure my friendships with other science fiction writers. There there aren't really so very many of us, uh, really only a few hundred at any given time. And, uh, well, the old cyberpunk gang, I'm, like there's Bruce Sterling and William Gibson and John Shirley and Paul DeFilippo. And uh, I love those guys, and it's I always love to talk to them. And I collaborate more than most science fiction writers do. I think Harlan Ellison collaborated a lot, but I think I've collaborated more than most people. I've written with Paul DeFilippo and Bruce Sterling, of course, and then uh, Terry Bisson and Eileen Gunn and uh, John Shirley and, and a couple of others I'm not thinking of right now. So I like that. I like working with them and getting the interplay. I don't go to science fiction conventions all that much. Uh, it's a lot of trouble, and I'm really not in the first tier of popularity in science fiction. I'm more a little, always been a little bit underground, and so I don't meet a huge number of people there who who have read my work or are interested in it. So that's that's not very gratifying. And now that I'm older, if I go to a science fiction convention, they might not even give me a slot on any of the panels. And so then that's that's super frustrating. So then I don't want to go there. There's, you know, a lot of new writers coming up. And, I, you know, I, I'm not too familiar with their work. I mean, Charlie Jane Anders and Annalie Newitz. I just went to a presentation they did the other day, and that was good. And when I was editing Flurb, I, I did 14 issues of an online science fiction easing called Flurb. And then I was working with a bunch of younger writers. And uh, some of them are still around. And that was, uh, I enjoyed that a lot. Though the thing is, as Flurb got more popular, then it got to be more work to run it, because then more people were sending me stories, and it just got out of control. I, I couldn't, couldn't do it anymore. But, uh, so, yeah, I, I love science fiction writers. They're always great people. So, I have another few questions, actually, not about these futurist things, but about your writing, especially. So, I was wondering, actually, like, maybe also reading Source of Wisdom, if... Can you, uh, are you like a science-informed animist? Uh, yeah, I would even go further than animism. Mm -hmm. You might know I wrote a book called Hylozoic, and that's a Greek word. And uh, hylo is matter, and zoic is alive. And that's the doctrine that everything is alive. And animist is sort of the same. It's saying everything is intelligent. They're, they're kind of almost the same thing. And uh, I think if you analyze it 
and I've talked to this about this with Stephen Wolfram. Uh, he's like the the great prophet of a new kind of science, a new way of thinking about physical computation as being it's as rich as anything in a computer. Uh, you always like example I always think of is if I look at like the leaves on a tree and if they're moving slightly in the wind, they're doing something, a chaotic computation. And generally any chaotic system is, logically speaking, is capable of universal computation. That is, it can emulate any behaviors whatsoever if you find a way to do the input and output. Another example I always use, if you look at a stone, well, how could you say is a stone is alive? Well, it has an octillion atoms in it, and they're connected to each other via things a little bit like springs, the forces, that they're vibrating. And then there's a quantum field around them, they're, they're entangled. And so it's just exceedingly rich system. So, I mean, why not say that that could be alive and conscious? Um, I think we, we get so hung up on imagining that we're the summit of creation. <laughs> it's, I mean, the world would be fine if we were gone. It would still be, you know, a very interesting place. Yes. So, uh, yeah, so I, I've always liked that idea. And the idea of the universe as a whole being alive, that's also an idea I like. That's a sort of uh, pantheism. And I'm comfortable with that. It makes me feel at home in the universe. Mm -hmm. There was a man, uh, Fechner, in the 19th century, and he wrote a lot about hylozoism. And uh, he said, well, if you imagine that the universe is all dead and we're just these few spots of light, of life and intelligence, then it's like you're in this huge warehouse full of and there's no lights, and there's just this dark machinery there that you can bump into, and we're just fireflies, you know, in the darkness. And that's a sort of unpleasant way to think of the world. And he said, or we can take the daylight view of the world, and we just imagine that the lights are on and everything is illuminated with intelligence, and uh, I think that's a more pleasant way to think of the world. Mm -hmm. So this obviously in informs your writing, right? Sure. Yeah. yeah. but. How um, how does it affect not only your perception of the world, but your living in it, kind of? Well, I'm always trying to be comfortable in my own skin and trying not to be stressed out and trying to be... Well, there's the thing of remorse over what you did in the past, and then there's the fear of the future. <laughs> And in the now, you can be compulsive about accomplishing some task. So to kind of uncouple from that whenever I can. I mean, I'm like anybody else, so I get hung up on the game, you know, and I forget all my good intentions. But if I can mellow out and feel like all is one, I'm part of the universe, there's, I'm safe, there's nothing to worry about, that's a touchstone for me. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting what you said about um, the world also like as in itself being alive, like the cosmos or the, or the universe. And it's what a lot of philosophers or like contemporary uh, academics right now are doing with this new turn of post-humanism, right? To mm -hmm. 
are you interested in that at all or do you have any thoughts on that uh you mean specifically what about post-humanism yeah like this new like critical post-humanism that is not so much about transhumanist futures but more about we become post-human by by thinking differently about the world not not by manipulating so much our bodies and cognitive features um i'm not sure i know much about that movement but i mean it sounds reasonable the the transhumanism is something a little bit different mm. that's like in silicon valley people that are obsessed with uploading their their mind into the cloud which at first science fiction i think that's a very interesting theme uh I, I wouldn't want to center my life around it. I heard a funny story. Some guy I know, he was saying uh, his father, his grandfather died and left his father you know, a good sum of money. And the family was living in, in poverty. Like the father said that he couldn't afford to send them to college and couldn't get them clothes. But he knew the father had all this stash of money. And he was like, what did he want the money for? And turns out he was using the money to buy a, a policy to get his head frozen when he died. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Dad. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, this is kind of a, a cliche, but is it really happening a lot? Is this like mainstream Silicon Valley, almost religion, this transhumanism thing? Uh, no, it's not. Yeah. I mean, I've met some guys here that are really into it, and okay. they're interesting guys, but they're, it's just, I think the idea, the underlying idea is something I was writing about in the Wear series, you know, or even in software, was the idea of, can you extract your personality and create a reasonable simulacrum of yourself that would be, in principle, immortal? And that's, I think, and I think that's going to happen. I even I've written about it, as you probably know. I, I refer to that as a life box, and I discuss it. There's a, a whole nonfiction book I wrote, "The Life Box: The Seashell and the Soul." And uh, I think we're getting close to. It. And I've lectured on it and here again. This is at I think it's at Institute for the Future. I was talking at one of their things, mm -hmm. and there are these guys from Hallmark Cards, and they say, "Oh, we're working on that," and. From time to time, I read about there's people that do this. They never acknowledge my work. They never mention me. But uh, you know, the prophet is well without honor uh, <laughs> until a movie is made of one of his books. But uh, the the idea of saving, uh, making a model of yourself, I think, basically, it's as I mentioned earlier. It's very hard to really do AI properly, and it's not clear we'll ever get it. We're getting closer with deep learning and evolving neural nets, and it's to some extent a matter of emulation, and then maybe under the surface it'll be doing something original. But you need, if you want to make a model of somebody, you need, basically you just need a really big data set. If you can have all the things they ever said, all the things they wrote, and if you can have that sort of like, a, in effect, like a little bit of a hidden website, And then you can just put a front end on it where you go to that page and you ask a question and it delves into that uh, database, just basically a Google search on it, and it produces some hits and then it'll just regurgitate those quotes or 
it'll weave them together with a little bit of you know very low end AI to make them into sentences and even have them seem to respond to what you said. And then it could remember for each user, it could remember what the users talked about in the past. So it'll act like it knows you and it'll say, well, the other day we were talking about such and such. And it could be, it could be quite convincing. We're, we're sort of easy to fool that way. Uh, I mean, <laughs> you can just do a, a circle with three dots, you know, and people will say, oh, that's cute, you know, <laughs> it likes me. <laughs> But uh, so I think that's going to be a big, big business. And everybody, when they reach a certain age, they want to write an autobiography. They want to be remembered. And if we could find a way to make this fairly painless, and I've written about it a lot. So I think that's a, a technology. And that's the kind of thing I'm always telling if I talk to business people. You should get on this. This is going to be a huge business. But then they always look away. <laughs> That's, I know if I'm making a really good futuristic <laughs> prediction, people like don't want to talk about it. Or, like, can we talk about something else? They rather use this intelligence for a self-driving car or for something similar boring, right? Intelligence for self-driving cars? Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I, I got to ride in one with Bruce Sterling, actually. We were over at Google, and they let us ride around for a while. It was sort of cool. But that's... Also something that science fiction talks about, right? You have this crazy technology, but then it's used for something very mundane, very boring, or something very commercial. Like, I don't know, there's brain implants, but then it's the big thing to use it is produce rock videos or whatever. <laughs> well, it's, you know, William Gibson's famous phrase, the street finds its own mm. uses for things. Uh, and, well, even the Internet, this it's still pretty good. I think that's, sometimes people say, well, it's been dragged down. There's so many ads and, you know, spam and propaganda. Mm -hmm. But really, all in all, it, it, it's still a pretty amazing. It's just, to me, that's a miracle that it, it got out of the box right away. I mean, the government and business never owned the Internet. And they can't ever. It's just too sprawling now. It's too ubiquitous. And I think that's a really cool, positive thing. And pretty much you can publish anything you want to on the Internet, you know. And the media, they always jump on these small, isolated things that are, you know, well, what about hate speech or what about revenge porn? And, okay, these things are terrible and they happen, but that's really not the overall gestalt of what the Internet is. I mean, mostly I'm, I'm finding things that are interesting to me, art, literature, fiction, how to do things, and... And it's great, and it's free, and it's pretty much un, uh, uncensored. Yeah. It was interesting that you started uh, with the robots because you also read or thought a lot about biotechnology, <laughs> right? Like all this bioengineering, also in a, in a less mundane way, maybe especially a lot of a lot of creature, a lot of new pets, yeah, I, stuff I, like that. I like to think about that. Well, Sylvia, my wife, she always says, I love critters. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always putting them in my paintings and in my fiction. Yes, yes. And she's always saying, don't use so many critters this time, <laughs> but I can't stop myself. Why is that? Uh, well, it's like this Bosch Bruegel kind of thing. I, I love, I just like creating. Yeah. There's a phrase, uh, it's an old phrase, sort of an old cartoonist phrase, eyeball <laughs> kicks. So 
a kick to your eyeball. So I want to, uh, kicks is a good time. And I like to put in eyeball kicks. So there's things, like in the old Mad Magazine, there'd be little things in the corners of the frames. And you just see that, and then you're like, wow, that's something else. So the critters, they're there for eyeball kicks. Yeah. Well, well, as you know, I, I the Wanderer, your painting, yes. is in my living room. Nice. So this is also like this landscape, and then you have a few eyeball kicks, I that's guess. Right, those little guys, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, they're sort of like the Seven Sins or something. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think biotech, I, we haven't really talked about that mm -hmm. much. But I think that that is going to be just huge in the the 21st century and we're really just getting started with it the thing about biology it's always so much more complicated than you imagined but if you read like a technical article it's it's always you think okay i've got it and then they're like but wait <laughs> yeah. it's just so unbelievably gnarly so we're still really walking in baby shoes there and uh but uh, yeah i think we could have all sorts of cool stuff I, I th it seems reasonable to imagine that in a hundred years we don't won't be using chip-based computers at all. It just seems it shouldn't be that hard to make living things that mm. can act like a cell phone. It, it's I don't see why it couldn't be done. Mm -hmm. So talking of critters, there's also a lot of tentacles in your paintings, in your writings. Yeah, Wh I, what about the tentacles? Well. I like that kind of curve. It's mathematically, I've always been interested in curves that they're sort of infinitely differentiable. That is, they're very, very smooth, but they're not, uh, they're not just like a part of a circle or an ellipse. Like they curve back on themselves. And I like to try to draw them and I, I like seeing them and thinking about them. And I love on octopuses, they say that their antenna, each tentacle has really as much intelligence as their brain. And that's very cool to think about. Because yeah, yeah. uh, we give too much credit to the brain sometimes. Yeah. And that the tentacles, they're very cool. <laughs> but not only octopus, yeah, there's a lot of jellyfish also, right? That yeah. have. Jellyfish, um, yeah. I also love, yeah. yeah. They're mathematically pretty simple to understand yeah. what they're doing. And uh, Bruce Sterling, he's always nostalgic about. We wrote a story about giant flying jellyfish. It's called Big Jelly. And even, I mean, that was a long time ago. It was like 20, 20 years ago at least. And he still will always send me, whenever he sees something funny about jellyfish, he'll always send me the link. I've just been to the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Yes. And this also appears on, in several spots, like in, the, in, your, in your novels. Yeah, Do you still go to that place sometimes, or uh, what? What's up with the Monterey Bay? Not so much uh, now; it's too crowded now. And uh, but <laughs> Bruce and I actually were there for uh, a conference of, uh, I think, computer human interfaces, and we were speaking there. And the part of the conference was in the Monterey Bay Aquarium, and they had a big show of jellyfish that time, and that's sort of where we got into it, to writing that story. Yeah, it's a fascinating place. I mean, I've also been to the to the jellies, uh, mostly when I was there. Yeah, 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 the jellies, they're amazing. It's fun to just see, well, there's always, it's a truism, but we, 
we sometimes long to see alien creatures, but mm. we've really got s- some things here that are about as alien as, yeah. as you could yeah. want. And the whole th- deal with whales and dolphins and their languages, that's just such a fascinating thing. And, you know, we, we just know nothing about all these things. Well, maybe to to wrap it up, to not um, pick your brain too much, um, may I ask, you t- You told me you're you're painting a lot right now, right? Mm-hmm. Are you writing also? Are, are you still, like, thinking science I'm fictional? I'm stories now. Okay. I finished a novel. Well, m- the last novel I wrote was Return to the Hollow Earth. And that was... Uh, I finished that about a year ago. Yeah, it's quite recently. Yeah, that's true. And uh, it actually was published before my novel Million Mile Road Trip, which I finished about two years ago, and that just oh, okay. was published. And those two are they're they're good novels. They're I I don't feel like my quality has fallen off. I think they're as good a novel as I can write. And uh, <laughs> somehow I just don't have the energy right now to write another novel. It's I always say it's like you've rowed across the Atlantic Ocean in a rowboat and then you know somebody says well when are you going to row back (laughs) just not today (laughs) but I do I love writing because and painting I like creative activities because then I forget myself you know the voices in my head stop and I'm just with the art and any kind of creative activity is that way you're just into the medium and it's it's fun and uh you're learning it's very satisfying it's this corner of the world where you have control and so much of the world is out of our control and uh it's pleasant to have some some place where you can do what you like and and the art i mean i've been doing it a long time and i know how to make it look the way i like it to be so i enjoy writing but recently i've been writing short stories and i might just stay with that for a while Mm -hmm. Well, two novels in the last two years, is, it's not, uh, I mean, we can't complain, I guess. <laughs> okay, yeah, there's no rush. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Julie. It's very nice to have you here. <laughs>